a lot of the climate movement has been focused on trying to everyone of the major impact that we are having by pumping more and more carbon into our atmosphere. And the strategy has been one of here, let me show you all the science. Let me show you all this data. You know, just let me data explain it all to you. But what the climate movement has historically failed to realize is that, is that data explaining doesn't get you anywhere with most people. It doesn't create that behavior change that we are looking for people to have. And for us ecopreneurs trying to convince people to buy our products or invest in our startup, we need to be able to convince people what that problem is, why it is a problem, and what we are doing to solve it. But if your way of doing this is just by data explaining to them or having a higher moral ground, it's not going to be very effective. It might work here and there, but it's not going to work as much as we need it to or as much as you want it to. That is why I'm super excited to introduce all of my listeners to Ben. He is the CEO and founder of Negotiating with Goliath. And he was a corporate trainer in negotiation techniques for years and now is looking to help ecopreneurs defeat the Goliaths in their industry. You are here for another dose of climate positivity on the Green Business Impact Podcast. Here we highlight the amazing work of green businesses from around the world that are fighting against climate change. If you are ready to be inspired to take action, ready to hear some amazing examples of how we are working to fight the climate crisis, then stay tuned because this week's episode will be the perfect hit of climate positivity. Ben, do you mind telling me a bit about negotiating with Goliath and what you do? Sure. So I'm a communications trainer and I used to train big corporations and the government in Germany and still work with the government a little bit. I basically got a push from some friends to move away from the large corporations and to start focusing on green tech startups and sustainability professionals. My focus within communications training is negotiations persuasion, conflict resolution. Awesome. And so you had this push from your friends to go towards green industries and sustainability. And what did that look like for you? You haven't been in this world, been in this corporate world. And then what was that transition like for you? Shocking. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it. First of all, it obviously has to do with the fact that these friends were in green tech themselves. And one of them actually leads an association of 150 green tech companies. So they know what they're talking about. And they were also pushing me in the direction of it's not good enough to just say, I'm not driving a car, I'm not using plastic bags, I'm okay, or we're going to be okay. And we had some conversations basically around the topic, are we going to be okay? The general gist was, yes, if we really get cracking. Definitely. If we actually start doing some stuff like it be possible, we need to get our button gear. So yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes. I realized that, I don't know, I just felt it's important to be part of that and to do my bit. And my bit wasn't using plastic straws. That just, that's not good enough for anybody, really. And I realized that's not good enough for me either. And I have this opportunity to use my skills to help people in green tech and in sustainability to maybe achieve more with improved communication skills. So what can I do but just help them? Yeah, definitely. And so how did you get started with trying to help them with their communication? What is a focus that you try to help companies with? So my main focus is... And this focus is based on the realization of where I come from, right? Which is the large corporations who have really powerful negotiation trainings. And they put a lot of money and 
energy and time into that. And it's just the fact that a green tech that's been around for even, let's say, two to three years, they're not going to be on par with a large corporation who may be their client or who may be trying to block them in some way and who's got decades and decades of experience and who's sunk hundreds of millions of dollars, literally, into the negotiation skills of their people. Yeah, definitely. You just can't like compare and you can't compete on that. So how do you help these entrepreneurs level the playing field? That's my great hope, right? Is that I can do my little bit in helping them level the playing field when it comes to negotiations, when it comes to persuasion, when it comes to the difficulties of things like coalition building, conflict resolution and all that. How can I help them? I think there's one rule that you can apply in general when you've got the underdog versus the big guy or David versus Goliath, as that's why it's called negotiating with Goliath, which may or may not be an app game naming. Well, I'll have to time will tell. Friends in India told me, yeah, we don't know anything about Goliath. And the Japanese tell me we don't have that character either. <laughs> when you've got a very uneven distribution of power, you have to use other approaches than the guys coming with the big clubs. Because even if you do swing a big club, and Green Tech does have some big clubs that they can swing. They have the big club of morality or ethics. They have the big club of these are the laws of physics. If we don't obey them, we're running into a wall or driving into a wall at in America, right? Miles an hour. These are big clubs, but the problem is that you swing them and you don't get anywhere. And I think that's one of the realizations that green tech and even scientists have come to that in negotiations or when you're trying to persuade somebody, logic is not the most powerful club you can swing. And neither is the whole morals and that kind of taking the moral high ground. It just doesn't work. It doesn't lead to the behavioral change that you want to see in your counterpart, regrettably. Yeah. We humans aren't built that logically. Yeah, we always try to say that we bring together this data and you're like, look what the data says. And I think a lot of the climate movement and really trying to make this change happen has been a lot of that. Look what the data says. We look at the graph, it's going up. There's the data, you can't ignore the data, right? And we keep on shoving all this data down people's throats and we just have found like, it's not really being effective. Like we're not seeing that behavior change that we need to see. And because like you said, people aren't built as logically as we want to think they are. And it's just like the same way in economics. And we think these people are like rational beings and they're not. They're emotional human beings who are, have our own psychological upbringings and evolutionary bringings from back when we were just reptiles and all this stuff. So it's like, we have all these things that are going into our decision-making. It's not just what does the data say? How can I best optimize based on the data? But there's so many other factors into it. How would you suggest a company who's maybe trying to go up against Goliath and what other clubs can you swing besides that morality, besides the data? First of all, I'd say don't swing any club at all. And mm -hmm. that's why it's called negotiating with Goliath. And which means not defeating Goliath. Yeah. Put down. <laughs> okay. That's the first step. Put down a slingshot, figure out something that's smarter because you know, the story of David and Goliath, it sounds nice. The reality is nine times out of 10, steps on David and goes, yeah, what was that? Whatever. See you later. <laughs> that's the sad reality that you don't have any clubs to swing. So you have to do something completely different, which is in the grand scale of things, there's one word that really does it. It's compassion. And it's engaging compassionately with your counterpart, building trust that way, and then realizing how you can draw out their sense of compassion. And that sounds a little bit like... To some people, that sounds really like wishy-washy and or let's, we'll meet somewhere in the middle. That's not what it is at all. It involves techniques that are used by FBI negotiators who have to deal with hostage takers. And it's very tactical. 
smart and it's based on deep psychology. It's just a different way to go. It's a totally different way to approach the problem. And the reason for that is because you were saying evolution before, and I love that. Yeah, we have our personal biases and our vested interests and stuff like that. But the problem, why people don't see the reality of climate change as it is, why they don't realize the actual danger they're in, and why they keep insisting on doing things the way they've done them for the last few decades, especially if they've been successful at doing it. The science behind that is actually really, and I don't know if you've heard of Donald Hoffman, who's a neurobiologist. So basically he comes up with this great example in his TED talk from 2017, I think it is. And he talks about the Australian jewel beetle. The Australian jewel beetle obviously doesn't see reality exactly as it is, but it's looking for certain patterns in reality with its kind of simple eyes and stuff, right? And the patterns it's looking for is shiny, how do you say, like a grid pattern, right? And mm -hmm. a kind of golden brown. Why is it looking for that pattern? Because that's what the rump of the female Australian jewel beetle looks like. So it's flying around. The female is really quite sad, but the female Australian jewel beetle, it can't fly, right? So the male beetle is flying around all over the place trying to find the female, right? And it's looking for this pattern. It's got this evolutionary hack of how to find the female. And so it finds the female and it starts humping it. It doesn't realize that's a beer bottle. And this problem, because in Australia, there was a beer bottle that the back of it looked like the hump of a female Australian jewel beetle. That problem almost drove the Australian jewel beetle to extinction. Why? Because most organisms don't see reality as it is. They see it through a kind of an interface, an, a series of hacks that allows them to produce and this is key, the interface allows them to produce goal-oriented behavior. And no matter how smart we think we are, even with our very accurate vision, which we think is that's not that accurate, right? And hearing and other senses, the same is true for any organism, any organism alive, okay? So first of all, no organism sees reality as it is, and all organisms see reality through an interface of hacks that enable us to produce goal-oriented behavior. This is where you think, okay, we don't see reality as it is. It's not that bad. It's okay. What are the series of hacks? You could have a look at the series of hacks, right? But the problem is, and this is where it gets really quite dangerous for humanity, is that the equation isn't higher level of accuracy equals more successful in evolution. The equation is focused on goal-driven behavior equals more successful in evolution. So, and this sounds really counterintuitive, but actually what's happening in evolution is that the less accurate but more goal-driven types of hacks for seeing reality, the types of looking at reality, are the ones that drive the accurate vision of reality to extinction. So put in simple terms, Trump will put your climate scientist to extinction, according to this logic of evolution, right? And he'll drive himself to extinction in the process, like the Australian jewel beetle. But anyway, so there's a certain kind of pressure on people who do have a more accurate understanding of climate change, not try to push that on other people because it just won't click. It's not part of their behavioral patterns and it's not even the way they see reality because they just see reality through a series of hacks, right? That's producing their goal-oriented behavior, which has been, I'm a successful guy in whatever, shipping, transport, oil and gas, pharmaceuticals, whatever it is, I made a load of money. I sent my kids to college. I've been a good father, a good husband. This is the way I see the world. And the way I see the world and the successes I've created are based on the hacks that create the interfaces for my perception of reality. And you're not gonna get somebody to change those hacks or change the way they look at reality by saying, 
you're such a horrible person. They don't feel like they're a horrible person at all. They've been a great husband, great father, great earner, whatever. Or maybe the other way around. I'm realizing right now I'm doing a little bit the aging white man thing, assuming that it's the daddy that earns them. That's horrible. That's my psychological stereotype, right? Yeah, even as much as I do. So I've got no reason for that bias. Maybe it's a cultural bias. Okay. It's important to remember, right? Even we catch ourselves out with our own biases. Yeah, we got to switch that story around for some more diversity. Yeah, but you bring up a lot of great points on the fact that like we see the world the way that it helps us reach our goals, whatever we're trying to understand, because the world has so much stimulus that if we were to take in all those bits of information, it would just overwhelm us and we wouldn't be able to do anything. We wouldn't be able to actually move forward and reach any of those goals because there's just way too much information to process. And so our brain has done this evolutionarily and selected four things that allow us to reach our goals, even if they're not the best for our own survival and for the survival of our world, we have to also realize that it's not always best to be the one that's correct. And it's not always best to say, I have the data, I have the understanding of climate science, I understand all of these things. Let me shove this all down your throat and make you understand too. That's not going to actually make you guys move forward or convince anybody else because perceiving the world in a different way. And I really like how you brought that up. What you have to do is you have to dock onto where they are, right? You have to mm -hmm. join them in their journey rather than trying to persuade them to join the, you on your journey, which is a lot more difficult. Yeah. And that's where the compassion comes in. That's where lots and lots of listening comes in, understanding, cultural references come in. That's where building trust comes in because people are more likely to change basically their perception of reality, right? Or their understanding of, for example, what's right and wrong and those kinds of things. They're more likely to change all that if they trust you and they feel that whatever you change you're requesting of them is in their own interest. And you only really get there by doing a lot of listening, building a lot of trust and being compassionate with whatever they throw at you because they're going to throw stuff at you too right yeah definitely and i'm assuming that's a lot of asking good questions right and being able to ask questions of somebody to being able to find out where those lines that you can take on and say oh and then we take it over this direction and bring in what i know about climate science and how that can relate back to them is that a way to go about it yeah certainly yes yeah. and also figuring out because you do need to lay down boundaries sometimes right lines in the sand that can't be crossed but that's all military jargon, right? And you don't really want to go there. So how do you lay down boundaries without coming across aggressive? How do you counteract aggression without becoming aggressive yourself? That's one of the biggest skills I believe. Yeah, that's huge. How do you go across with that and being able to come back to somebody who's being aggressive, speaking aggressively towards you or in a way and be able to take that and not come back as aggressive, but also bring it towards the end goal? As you can imagine, there's more than one method for this. Right? I'm sure. I'm okay. sure. One of the first things you have to realize is that negotiating skills are not just cognitive skills. They're skills where you build good reflexes. And the most powerful thing to be able to do is to not have the normal built-in reflexes to you know the typical fight or flight or the freeze reflexes that many people have but to build your inner resilience against stress and aggression and we do that through training like basically just training those kinds of situations but also through methods like a body scan where you figure out okay what's my body doing when i'm aggressed against what's my physical reaction hunch my shoulders or clench my fists or clench my jaw 
Some people's neck goes forward like this and then they themselves become aggressive. And there's a lot of deep science about what's actually happening when you do that. For example, when your head goes forward like this, right, there's a sheath that runs close to your vertebrae, which is called a keratin sheath. And it's got a part of the vagus nerve in it, which allows you to find that balance, the inner balance that allows you to relax again, right? Now that sheath actually gets squeezed when you move your head forward like this, right? So there goes the vagus nerve activity. There goes your ability to find your inner balance again. So just even realigning your neck has like some of those hidden superpowers that people don't know. It's really huh. simple stuff. Some of it is really simple. The thing is just you have to learn to train that as a reflex and to build that back in as a reflex in order to then be able to react constructively rather than destructive. And that's crazy. Yeah, I've been learning about the vagus nerve as well, just how much it wanders throughout all of our system, especially like into our gut and understanding what's going on down there. And then also that takes into account like microbiomes, both in your gut and in your brain. And, and so there's so much science around yeah. all of that and really all the perceptions that we have are, of our own body and how we're feeling at different times. But it takes some training to really be able to tap into ourselves and really be able to have that introspection to understand where am I at right now? Because if you're going into a negotiation situation and you haven't slept well the day before, or you haven't eaten right, or you're coming off of jet lag or things like that, you really have to understand like, where is my body at right now? And how can I best prepare myself to go into a negotiation situation when I'm in not optimal state, right? I'm in this state where I'm tired or I haven't right or like any of these other things that might be going on at the same time and going into a situation. How do you train negotiators or people going into these types of situations who might have that, have had suboptimal things going on during their day before they go into a negotiation situation? Okay, so first of all, there's always suboptimal stuff happening. And some of it is pre-programmed. You can't do anything about it. For example, when it's five minutes before lunch, your body starts feeling that energy level go down. And there's just a chose. This is actually fascinating. Australian judges who make the decision on whether to give the probation judges, right? So whether to give the probation to the inmate or not, or he's got to stick around. So just before lunch, they're, I think, five or, five or six times less likely to give the probation as just after lunch. Why? Because the energy level, lack of glucose in the brain and things like that, makes you antisocial. Antisocial is a very non-scientific term in this case, but it tends to strengthen the voice of the amygdala. And I call it the voice, right? Because if you various brain areas that help you make decisions, they're actually not all aligned. There's various brain areas that kind of discuss every decision you make, especially complex decisions. And so let's say there's six parties which are like building a parliament in your brain, right? And they're discussing in a matter of milliseconds, right? But they're discussing what are we going to do? And when one voice becomes more powerful because the glucose level in your brain is getting lower, then that has an effect on your decision-making process and that can be shown. And then what do you do? And I think the first thing is always to be aware of that, is that the tendency to make pro-social and compassionate decisions goes down as you head towards lunch, as you go towards like the 20 minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes before lunch. It just goes down. That's a fact. And knowing about the pre-programmed things that are happening to your body and that affect your decision-making is of great value, I believe. And then the other thing is, once you've got that knowledge on your side, so to say, then you can strengthen your awareness of what you're doing, what's happening in the moment. And then you can strengthen 
the skill, you can build the skill to react different. And the awareness building is also quite simple, actually. It is, do you know there's these body scan exercises where you, know, you close your eyes and you focus on the top of your head, you focus on your forehead. Is it scrunched or is it relaxed? You focus on where are my eyebrows, how's my nose feel, feel the cooler air coming in your nose, warmer air coming out, and you walk your way through your body, right? And you try to just align it. And then you imagine a really nasty situation that you've experienced. And it doesn't have to be a professional negotiation. It could be a, whatever, an argument you had with your wife or something, right? You imagine this really nasty communicative situation and something happens in your body and you pay attention to what happens. Now, you're doing this as a training. So you're becoming more and more aware of exactly what's happening and what are your strongest reactions to the stress factors that you're facing. And then you just realign yourself. If you're the kind of person who's tummy goes all tight, then you relax that. Or if you're the kind of person whose neck goes forward, whose shoulders hunch or whose jaw clenches, it's different for everybody, right? So it's like an experiential thing. It's a very personal experiential thing. And then you notice what it is that you happen to do in that kind of situation and you reverse it. And what you can do is if you do this regularly for, let's say, take two or three weeks and you do it in the morning and the evening, so let's say you've got 15, 20, 30 of these mini trains, which only take three minutes, right? Three to five minutes. You've got those out of your, it's like learning to swing a baseball bat or do your serve with a, in tennis or table tennis or something like that, right? You're training a new reflex and you get it to the point where when you notice, first of all, you become faster at noticing that your body's misaligning and you become faster at realigning your body. And the crazy thing that does is there's a, a part of you called the anterior insular cortex that's looking at how your body is aligned and more things, looking at whatever pH levels in your blood, breath rate, et cetera, et cetera, right? But it's looking at all this body data and then it's telling you, oh, this is the emotion you're feeling, you're angry. So if you realign your body, it's actually the fastest way to get your emotion under control again, because now the anterior insular cortex is looking at your body and saying, hey, what happened? It's all realigned. Everything's fine. Okay. We're fine. We're fine. Turn it off. Turn, off. Turn off the alarm, right? We're fine. Yeah. So it's looking at what's happening to your body is actually such a efficient way and a so much faster of getting out of these nasty loops of negative emotions that you can have and people do have in negotiations that it's super powerful. It's just really fast and really convincing for your anterior insular cortex. Right, definitely. And so like a lot of people, they try to think, oh, I'm just going to force myself to feel a certain way. And what many people have realized is that doesn't work. There's this relationship between the brain and the body with the feedback loops of, okay, you are feeling a certain way. So that means that you're feeling this emotion. And if you can disconnect from that and put yourself in the middle of that, because there's, there's a gap between when the emotion starts causing these bodily things happening. So like your jaw tensing or your palms maybe getting sweaty or things like that, those reactions happening and the emotions coming up and being able to put yourself in between that, the physical response and before that, and realizing what's going to happen and saying, doing some breath work or just realizing that or, or being able to have that awareness, you can break that off from it becoming just continuing and taking over your entire state by being able to go into that emotion gap right, right there in the center and being able to say, okay, I'm okay. <laughs> let me get back to where I'm supposed to be. Let me realign. And importantly, let me refocus on my strategic mm -hmm goals because so many of the things 
that we where we get like emotionally distracted do not serve our strategic goals. If somebody's telling me like, yeah, climate change, I'm not so certain. Maybe it's a hoax, right? And I get all in his face about it then maybe I won't sell whatever I wanted to sell to him, but which would have had a positive effect for climate change. I'm not saying that's not a valuable discussion to have with a person who's talking about climate change being a hoax, right? It is a valuable discussion to have with that person at some point, but not when your strategic goal is something else and it gets in the way of the strategic goal. When your strategic goal would serve to mitigate climate change practically, right? Then put your emotions somewhere aside, put them on a sidetrack and let them rest there for a moment. You don't need to push them down the hill. Right, definitely. Because if you come at a person who's, oh, climate change is a hoax, and you try to give them all these stats of, how can you not believe this? It's a hoax. Like, you have this data and this data and this data, and you just throw it all at them. They're going to be like, turn you off. Bye-bye. I'm not listening to you. Or they're going to shut down, and they're not going to think about it. They're not even going to consider anything that you said, because they are in this reality of understanding that climate change is a hoax and they have all these reasons that back it up based on things that they've heard and then of course they have the perception that when they have decided this thing that climate change is a hoax their brain goes and looks for all the reasons that climate change is a hoax for however mm -hmm. many times right and they filter out all of those other reasons why climate change is not a hoax and so when they're living in that reality coming back to what we were talking about earlier they're living in that perception that climate change is a hoax and so if you're trying to come in and say climate change is not a hoax i'm going to give you all of these data points they're going to say, no i can't consider any of those data points that's just extraneous too much information i have these data points that i have found of all the reasons it's a hoax and i'm going to stick with those because that's my perceptual reality that i'm living in and if i try to change that's a lot of work you know what you're doing right is you're trying to take the australian jewel beetle off the beer bottle right and it's going like, no, 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 no. It's I'm right there. It's right there. I'm winning. <laughs> or if you look at more through the psych, this, that's the evolutionary lens, right? If you look at more through the psychological lens, then that's what we call the confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. One of the most well-researched bias of all the over hundred psychological biases that are out there. What I like is in German, in English, they're called cognitive biases. And in German, they're called cognitive Verzerrungen, which means cognitive distortions. And I like that. It's yeah. almost better. It's, in a way. Have their, it's just how it like, uh, uses different kinds of words to describe, even in science, the same phenomenon. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And you have to really be able to connect with them and understand, can we come to them with compassion to understand where they are at, to understand, okay, how can we bring them to the point where we want them to be, to make those decisions that are climate positive or that are going to be better for the climate or better decisions for the climate. But we would have to take them along the journey because they're not at your point in the journey of your feeling about climate activism or your product, which is going to be healthy climate in a certain way. They're still over here. You got to bring them along that journey. This has been really fun. I'm really enjoying talking all the psychology. I have a bachelor's in psychology. This has been a lot of fun. Let me ask you another question here. What is the biggest challenge that you feel for either helping people understand how to go into situations of negotiation or for yourself? What has been the biggest challenge for you trying to excel at negotiation? Okay. 
So I'll start with a general challenge that I perceive as the big challenges for people who might train. One of the biggest challenges is the one that I've already touched on it is taking those reflexes that lead you down whatever road chance wants to lead you down, happenstance type of stuff, and often more into harder arguments, more aggression, confrontation, right? Taking all those reflexes and reshaping them into constructive and compassionate reflexes. I think that's a real big challenge. And honestly, that's also been my biggest challenge. I have to say, this is not a skill that I was born with or even raised to have or anything like that. I would say that my parents or my whole, everybody around me, aunts, uncles, I come from an academic background, some lawyers and everybody's the teachers and they're really argumentative and we're German, right? So we're like in your face kind of argumentative, right? So I think I learned the opposite of what I'm teaching and I've faced some really difficult situations in life where I butted my head against the wall so bad. But I'm the kind of situations that I just had to resolve. And I think so actually that replacing the, the reflexes that lead you down hell in a handbasket, replacing those with more goal-oriented, constructive, and compassionate reflexes, that has been one of the great challenges of my life too. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think it is for everyone because I think a lot of that revolves around like emotional quotient, right? IQ, right? Being able to understand versus intelligence quotient, which is IQ, but there's also this, this EQ component. How do you deal and understand your emotions and how do you react to your emotions and things like that? That's a huge, huge part of what we're talking about here is having higher EQ, being able to understand where you're at in your body, where, how are you reacting to your emotions and how are you using them in your day-to-day -day life? And being able to have a higher EQ is something that we don't focus on in school. We don't focus on it much at all. There have been a lot of research that has come out now, and there are some schools that are actually starting to try to implement being able to teach EQ and things like that. But it's very difficult. And that's why we haven't done it in the past. And that's why it's hard. It's a difficult thing to do because it's not, okay, take out your textbook, turn to page 233 and start reading about EQ or something like that. No, no, no you can't do that. I mean, you, you have to teach emotional quotient in a completely different way. And it's a difficult thing, but you mentioned it's the biggest challenge. I think that's a challenge for everybody. I think it's also a challenge for us culturally, it's especially in modern Western and industrialist civilizations. It's all about what you're doing. What are you producing? What are you shopping? What are you doing? How are you creating something valuable or doing, providing some value for somebody? Or It's all about doing. And thinking about EQ requires us to ask, how am I being? How am I being is a totally different different question from what am I doing? But the way I was raised, at least I got to say, right? Always got to be active, got to earn money, got to do this, got to do that. Let's go on a holiday. We got to look at all the important cultural sites, blah, 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 blah. academic. <laughs> and I think there's some kind of subconscious resistance to taking the time to not do it and just be, and then also thinking about how am I being? Yeah. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but I think there's a cultural tendency that's like causing this, these problems that we're having with figuring out how to train EQ. Yeah, definitely. Because it's not something we can easily test either. It's not something you can put on a test score and assess people on. It's a lot more difficult, a lot more nuanced and a lot difficult to just completely understand how, how is your EQ progressing today? I can take somebody, I can sit them down, I can give them a Scantron or the bubble, fill them in a multiple choice and okay, they can do their, figure out their IQ. But can we really do that for EQ? It's a, it's very, it's a different concept that we have to really consider. I think it's going to be a big challenge for us 
us going forward. I think it's going to be really important to develop as a society because being able to develop EQ would help in so many different ways. It would help with overwork. You talked about before giving your giving yourself a chance to sit with how are you being, right? I think that's super important for so many different decisions that we're making during the day, being able to react in a better way towards other people would just help with all sorts of things like wars, violence. You'd run the gamut and yeah. being able to tap in your EQ would be so beneficial for society for sure. Yeah. And of course also changes the outcomes of your decisions. Right. Exactly. Which is kind of that's my point. That's my you gotta have a reason why you're doing it. For me, that's kind of the cornerstone. Yeah, definitely. Okay. We're gonna start wrapping it up here. What are your goals with negotiating with Goliath? For the next six months or so okay so i've just started a collaboration with a learning platform called wonder which is i like to call it wonder without the e because they spell it w-o-n-d-r right? and they're a cohort learning platform so it's about social learning it's about the learners also saying what they need it's about the interaction between the learners and the mentors i love that platform so i've just started a collaboration with them and i put my six-week course it's an intensive interactive negotiating course for small groups, not 20 or 50 or 100 people per course. Right? Only, I would say at the moment, a maximum of nine people so I can split them into groups of three in the breakout sessions, like really intense learning experience. And so to build that up, to reach more people with that, and also, and this is one of the key things, to figure out how can I help make the greatest possible impact for sustainability professionals and people in green tech, which I think there's two directions I can go with this, right? One direction is to go for lots and lots of people. And the other direction is to go for the quality of the people and the, the level at which they're making decisions. So one thing is I'm trying to reach, especially with that six week course, which is not six weeks ongoing, right? The whole time. It's just one, two hour session per week, and then some little extra bonuses on top. But with that, I'm trying to reach people who are in real decision-making positions, right? Who have the power to make really important decisions and who want to, or who engage in really important negotiations right? and who want to optimize the outcomes that they can generate in the negotiations. So that's the one thing. And the other one going for mass is, and I think if you want to go for mass, like everybody knows, you need something like a MOOC, right? Like one of those massive open online courses. Most MOOCs are being produced by universities. I don't have a university who, who's saying, hey, Ben, I want you. But if you know a university that wants my course, I'm free, okay? So it's all about impact. Uh, and I've set up an automated course, which has just seven lessons. They're like 15 to 20 minutes each. Anybody can do this, right? You don't even have to be a negotiator. And it's very reasonable to in the pricing. So it's not, people can't afford it. And here it's about reaching as many people as possible. So yeah. those are the two directions that I'm going in simultaneously. And the thing that unifies those two directions is the desire to make an impact, the desire yeah. to help as best as I can with as much impact as I can. Yeah, for sure. Because these people who are making these decisions and these talks and everything about the climate and things like that, the climate is the biggest issue that is going on right now. It's going to be impacting all of our lives. It already is. And it's going to have a ripple effect on so many different areas of our life going forward. So really being able to help those people get in those conversations, be able to work through them and come out the other side with something that's better for the planet I think is going to be super important going forward. So thank you for your work. And I'd like to ask T, what are you currently learning right now? I'll start with generally. So I'm used to working for corporate clients, right? 
And once you build those contacts, there's not much that it happens by word of mouth, right? So up until the end of last year, my way of working was defined by just doing the best that I can and making sure that I get good feedback or good, good recommendations. And before COVID, it was mainly standing in a room with so and so many people, right? A dozen, 20, whatever. And for me, so it's been a big switch to bring everything online. And yeah, then to also say, okay, I'm giving up my regular clientele, cutting the saying goodbye to a lot of the regular clientele and trying to generate new clientele in this sphere, in the sector of sustainability and green technology, but also in many other directions too, everything from regenerative farming to people who are looking at economics and fintech. So quite broad, right? What have I been learning? I've been learning how darn tough it is to do good online marketing. Yes. Yes. I think that is the general question, right? Yes, it really is. And it's another profession just for Facebook. It's another profession just for email marketing. It's just another profession for, yeah, you, you could spend days on all of the different online marketing. So yeah. And at the same time, that's something where I think I've needed to and have hopefully done so leveled up my skills but also maybe that's another goal for like in six months or maybe in 12 months which is that i won't be doing that anymore hire is going to be able to take care of that for you and has the expertise who's done it for a while i think that's everybody's goal yeah for sure and for any entrepreneur on here who's interested in growing their business taking it to the next level being able to start negotiating with those higher level clients, what is one tip that you would give them or want them to leave this conversation with? You're really putting me on the spot. Okay. So one thing that powerful people like to do, because they know they can put the pressure on you. Right? And so there's a million types of manipulations that they, obviously I can't go through them all, right? but to keep, just get a few very simple ones. So there's the fairness claim. The fairness claim is pretty much, this is a fair offer or it's a fair deal or what I'm offering you is so fair. And a lot of people don't know how to counter that because they start talking about what's fair, what isn't, and they might even get upset and say, fair, how? And so one technique that's really helpful is first is mirroring, verbal mirroring. You just repeat the last word that they said. Most likely the last word they said is fair. You say fair. And you don't say fair, you say fair. You're just repeating it. You're just letting it hang there. And what you want them to do is you want them to start explaining why they think it's fair. Because once they start doing that, then they've opened the door to another level of discussion where you know, they're, I don't want to call it an attack, but then you can get in and start to reason with them about what's fair. But on a calmer level than, than if you started it, you want them to stop that. That's the thing. And yeah, some people don't react to that. You just say, fair and they just they just endure the silence you're trying to endure the silence they're trying to do the silence and it ends up that nobody talks for two minutes and you're just like awkward it's not going anywhere so then what do you do so one of my favorite go-to sentences about that is is a technique called labeling so you're labeling their state of mind you're saying it seems you're very confident about that so it felt like you were about to back it up with hard evidence so you're basically first of all kind of congratulating them on their confidence right it seems like you're so confident about that and i just had this feeling you were going to back it up with with evidence like a gentle way of saying hey you better explain that you're not you know what i mean it's really important also with these things right the tone of voice the way you the way you move, your body language. So there's a lot of things that go into it, but basically with these two sentences or techniques, one, the mirroring and then the labeling, one mirroring being repeat the word fair 
and labeling being it seems like you're so confident about this. And it, you got to be really careful with that, though, not to come across like patronizing. So that's you seem really confident about that. So <laughs> confident about that. What's so you're treading a fine line there. But if you do it right, this can look total magic when people come at you with things. And you know what? I've spent too much time explaining this fairness claim now. So I think we'll leave it at that one. Maybe just there's about a dozen of these tricks that are that you can train quite quickly. You have to build it into a good reflex. You have to pay attention to your tone of voice. You have to pay attention to your body language, et cetera, et cetera. But if you get good at it, these are like little magic tricks that are at the same time compassionate, but guiding towards your strategic goals. So keeping you on track with your strategic goals for the negotiation. You're not making compromises. And this is one of the big things. Compassion doesn't equal compromise. And in fact, most of the times, if you're really compassionate, you can get more out than a bad compromise. A lot of the bad compromises that we have been getting, regrettably. Look at the cops, right? Yeah. Not the cops, policemen, cops, but- The you know, COP 26, yeah. 27, 28. 35, 89. Oh, yeah. We, I mean, I think I made this statement one time about we can't wait until COP 89 for them to make any decisions about what's going to happen. Like, we need to like have to start doing stuff now. So, anyways, businesses um, are doing things now. That's the amazing. It's mm -hmm. just that why are we still subsidizing oil like that? Why yeah. are we still paying certain prices? Why does the economy still or the market still push us in certain directions and things like that? So. The regulatory stuff needs to step up to where business is already, at least the startups and the, the, the creative and the really most productive businesses at the time where they're really wanting to go. They just need support. Yeah. So exactly. the policymakers need to step up to the plate, right? For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Ben, it's been so awesome having you on the show here. If anybody wants to reach out to you, get in touch with you, learn more about your course, we'll have the, the link down below. But if they want to get out, reach out to you directly, where can they find you? It's Ben at negotiating-with-goliath.com. Perfect. And I'll have that in the show notes as well. So everything will be down there. Ben, it's been really great having you on the show today. I have really enjoyed going into the psychology of it, really thinking about things in a different way and being able to talk about negotiation and how we can do this on another level. So thank you so much for coming on the call. And I definitely hope we can have you back again sometime and be able to talk more specifically about clients that you've helped and things that you've seen in the climate tech and climate world and how you've helped negotiate in that way. So I'd love to have you back on someday to be able to talk more about that. But yes, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Yeah, I also feel like there's still a lot to talk about, right? Oh, so, there really is so much. Yeah. Thank you, too. It's been a real, real pleasure talking to you. Definitely. And if you enjoyed this interview with Ben and how to negotiate with the Goliath in your industry, then I invite you to download Ben's amazing ebook that he has available for you on his website and linked down in the description below. It's called Pitch Less, Hook More, Seven Scientifically Proven Strategies that gets you into second meetings with investors. Because so many entrepreneurs are able to get that first meeting, but they fail to land the second or third, which is where the deals get made. And Ben's ebook helps you do exactly that, helps you land those second meetings and provides you with the power that you need to negotiate and get that yes and make your green business scale to the next level.
thank you for listening to another episode of the Green Business Impact Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing your weekly dose of climate positivity. In a world that constantly inundates you with the negative things happening, it can be great to take a break and hear some great things happening in the world. Make sure to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app to stay up to date with the latest and best interviews of the top minds in the green industries. And if you are interested in launching your own podcast to make an even larger impact on the world, then look no farther than the podcasting platform that I use here to launch every single episode of Green Business Impact, Podbean. I searched through all the different podcasting platforms out there and the best choice by far was Podbean. They give you truly the best value and all the resources you need to spread your message to the world by easily connecting you to all the different podcasting networks like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all of them. And they give you so many resources and opportunities to monetize it as well. So if you are on the fence about which podcasting platform to go with, make sure you check out the link in the description below to register your podcast with Podbean. Thanks again, and we can't wait to see you back here next time for another hit of Climate Positivity.